0: Uh, if you would, please turn with me to uh, Psalm chapter 11, Psalm 11. I want to thank Ron, and I'll speak real loudly so James can hear me, North Carolina. I want to thank James last week for speaking for me uh, the last two weeks. I had told James not to tell anybody I was coming back to town because I thought it might suppress attendance, and it looks like uh, the people on the far right side heard I was coming back. Here, here come some of them back. But uh, we had a very nice family vacation in Texas and Florida. But uh, driving through Louisiana last Sunday, headed back this direction, is when we heard about the uh, three peace officers in Baton Rouge uh, being shot and killed. And a week prior to that, we had driven from Debbie's sister's house in southeast Texas, Right through Baton Rouge to get to the panhandle of Florida, and it had already been the unfortunate police shooting of an unarmed person. When that happens, that person should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, but we're a nation's of law, we don't lynch policemen, just like we shouldn't lynch anybody until it's fairly adjudicated, but um, the night before we drove from Southeast Texas to Florida, all that the news had was about the violence uh, reactions, violent reactions in Dallas and in Baton Rouge to the police events earlier, and I, I'm thinking we're going to drive right through that tomorrow. So we left early and got through it. But a week later, we're heading this way, and we heard about that. So uh, you know, I, when I heard that, I know I'm no different than any of you. It's horrific. It, I just felt like I got kicked in the gut. I didn't know whether to cry. And I'm driving 75 miles an hour, you know, on the interstate whether to cry or just to get physically ill or both, and I actually didn't do either one, but uh, as I got back this week and thought about it, I thought, you know, this might be a good time to take a one-week break from our series and look at Psalm 11 and think about what it talks about, namely, how should Christians respond when our society is in spiritual and moral freefall? And in my opinion, there's no doubt that's the kind of society... We're living in today. That's the kind of society that David was speaking to and about in Psalm 11. So God's word does speak relevantly to us. And I hope that uh, this review of this psalm can help you as much as it's helped me this week as I've thought about it. It's our uh, custom here to pray in a special way for our teachability to God's word, but also for our troops our peace officers and our firefighters and the, the status quo now. Uh, the old joke is, you know, status quo is a French word for the mess we's in. And uh, somebody on the news said that recently. And my dear wife, you know, she goes, I thought you made that joke up. Because I've been saying it for 30 years. I said, no, I heard, like, I heard somebody at seminary say that. I didn't make it up. <laughs> All the ones you actually think are cute or interesting, I didn't make up. I just stole from somebody else. But... Uh, you know, our status quo is such that when we say we're not just praying for troops, but peace officers, right, Jane? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, because those people put their lives on the line every day, as do our firefighters. So let's pray in a special way uh, for those folks. And there's a there's a picture of the three peace officers who were shot a week ago today in Baton Rouge. Uh, it's ironic that one of those is African American. Uh, if you Google... Uh, Information about Montrell Jackson, just a big-hearted guy, kind of like Hoss on Bonanza. Lots of pictures of him with kids, white, black, yellow, brown, in the community. Uh, and uh, he was assassinated a week ago. Of course, you know, we believe in a God whose plan includes even the black parts of the mosaic tile. And ultimately, it all fits into his purposes. But at a human level, it's just... Uh, A horrific thing, but I think Psalm 11 speaks to this. It can help us. And so let's pray that will happen today despite the teacher, but also let's pray as we always do for our troops, our peace officers and our firefighters. And uh, Steve Skinner, would you lead us in that direction, please? Thank you. Um, let me read Psalm 11 from the New American Standard Bible. Derek read it from the NIV earlier. As we work through this passage in a moment, I'm going to use kind of an expanded translation that I think will be helpful in pulling out some nuances from the original. But let me just read it uh, as our baseline from uh, the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director of Psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. That's a separate statement. That's an umbrella over everything else. Now, he says, How can you say to me, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Just give up. Just panic. Stop. Pout. Drop out. Full stop. Here's the important part of the psalm. Here's the truth behind the statement of trust. Even in the worst days of the American Republic, the Lord is in His holy temple. And the Lord's throne is in heaven that's above the United Nations, Washington DC, Oklahoma City, the Kremlin or anything else. His eyes behold, he's, he's not asleep, he's aware what's going on. and his eyelids test. he holds us ultimately personally accountable to him. the sons of men. the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. and the one who loves violence at what's, what's God's attitude toward Isis. It says here, the one who loves violence, his soul he, at the depth of his being, hates. Upon the wicked he, God, will rain snares in time, and in eternity, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For, because, this is all going to happen because, regardless of the unfairness of life now, including car wrecks and drunk drivers uh, that kill people and cancer and ISIS, and people who target police officers. The Lord is righteous, and he loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. Let me describe just a bit of our status quo today in the world and in the United States. This past November, Muslim extremists attacked Paris, France. They killed 130 civilians and wounded 352. This past December, Two Muslim extremists in San Bernardino, California, killed 14 people at an office Christmas party and injured many more. Uh, Just last month, the second week of June, one Muslim extremist attacked a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, killed 50 people, wounded 53 more. 18 days ago, July 6th, Muslim extremists attacked the airport in Istanbul, Turkey, the capital of that nation, Killed 36 people, wounded 147 more. Ten days ago, July 14th, a Muslim extremist terrorist used a truck and a gun to kill 84 people, including little children and babies, uh, and wound 202. And I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, which is a good thing, because Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is a non-profit organization, so all your gifts are tax deductible, So I don't predict much, but I'm going to predict that some politician is going to propose some kind of truck control legislation. We need terrorism control. We need crime control. Forget about the truck control. Uh, And it gets worse if that's possible. The number of peace officers in the United States that have been shot and killed on duty, not because they investigate a a home violent situation and the guy beating up his wife grabs a gun and shoots in passion. That's horrific. That's terrible. That's indescribable. I hate it. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about somebody sure who robs a bank trying to get away. They shoot a policeman trying to get away to cover their tracks. We're talking about ambush. We're talking about let's attract police and get combat ready and kill as many as we can as fast as we can. Uh, the number of peace officers killed In those kind of incidents is double the number of the same kind of crime for the entire year of 2015. The two most jarring incidents took place this month. July 7th in Dallas, five police officers who were targeted were killed. Many others were wounded by a black power extremist with possible influence by Islamic extremism. Uh, Last Sunday, July 17th in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Three fine public servants, these three men, uh, were ripped away from their families and from their community uh, and killed by a black power extremist. Now think back to Psalm 11. Uh, One of the key statements in that psalm is the rhetorical question hey, go ahead and run for your life and panic and, and get away and, and, and flee away from your responsibilities and, and act like God's not even relevant here and just do what you got can to protect yourself. Because after all, if the foundations, if the moral and spiritual foundations of the culture are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the implied answer to the wrestle is nothing. There's nothing you can do. Just give up hope. Just uh, let's panic and, and give up. And that's, but here's the thing. Hey, that's not where the Psalm stops, Carla. It doesn't stop with verse 3. Verse 4 and through verse 7 is going to give us a plan, going to give us a concept of what we can do. In other words, when cultural chaos and horrific crimes are the order of the day, what can Carol Wanzer do? What can Zane Britton do? What can Rodina do? What can Carolyn do? What can Steve do? What can Brad do? Well, there's actually a lot of things we can do. And this psalm is going to tell us. And the Word of God is going to speak to us directly on this. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about stuff like this. But this is one of the more uh, concentrated ones. So let's look at Psalm 11 this morning briefly. It breaks down, the seven verses break down into uh, three parts. First, we have a statement of core conviction by a believer. His name's David. You've heard of him. He was the second king of Israel. Uh, He had his moments of carnality, adultery and murder, you know, probably not really good on your resume. And yet God uses all kinds of flawed human raw material to accomplish his purposes. The Bible says, for by grace, and that word means unmerited favor. Favor from God you don't earn or deserve, and you can't unearn or undeserve. For by grace are we saved through faith. Not by works, but faith in Jesus Christ. And our salvation is not from ourselves, it's the gift of God. David is a good example of salvation by grace, because if it was by works, he wouldn't have made it. Okay? He wouldn't have made it. So, we see his statement of his core conviction, and I'm going to call that the core conviction of believers, of... Uh, Jane Boobin, of uh, uh, Lloyd Davis, uh, of Ken Wanderer, Brad McCoy. The core conviction of believers who persevere instead of panicking and dropping out in the face of spiritual and moral freefall in our culture. That's the first part of the psalm, verse 1. Then in verses 2 and 3, we have a description of the kind of cultural chaos that can tempt believers. Like Lloyd, or Ken, or Brad can tempt us to panic and to punt spiritually and morally. And then finally, we're going to see the content of David's conviction. The content of the conviction we need to have if we're going to be stable despite the shattering of our culture. The content of the core conviction, the truth of the core conviction, who persevere in the face of spiritual moral freefall. (coughs) Excuse, Excuse me on that. So notice the first statement is, is this an, an affirmation of trust and then verses four through seven tell us what the psalmist is trusting in about God. Okay. It's content. So we could call this trust, trauma, and truth. And that'd be a good way, I think, to think about it. So let's look at the first part, trust. This core conviction of believers who persevere instead of panicking and giving up in the face of spiritual and moral freefall. And let me use my expanded translation here. In the Lord. Now, I'm translating that all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know why? Because it's important. It is important, but that's not the reason. There are two different Hebrew. This was written in Hebrew by David. There's two different Hebrew words for Lord. Adonai and Yahweh. And when you translate Yahweh into English, Rodina, you put it in all caps so the English reader knows this is that special name for God that means the God of my salvation, the God who for the Old Testament saints believed God's promises he's going to send a Savior. The God who for us on this side of the cross believed Jesus was the Savior, he died for our sins and he rose again and because he lives, there's nothing ISIS is going to do that's going to eradicate the power of the resurrection. There's nothing United Nations can do. There's nothing that Donald Trump can do. There's not any... Even Hillary can't annul the power of the resurrection. Okay? So that's that's important to know. In the Lord, in the God of my salvation, for David, the, the pulpit represents Christ dying for our sins and paying our sin debt and rising again. The Old Testament folks were living before that, but they had a glide path of promises in Scripture pointing them to a promised Savior. For those of us on this side of the cross, we have a provided Savior we look back to. So David's an Old Testament believer. He's speaking to us as New Testament saints. He's over here. We're over here. We're all in one big family. And he's saying, I'm not going to panic. It's tempting to. And there's lots of reasons. I can give you a hundred reasons for panicking. But my bottom Line is, and where I stand is in the fact, Tom, that in Yahweh, the God of my salvation, I've trusted that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and that I'm going to get to go to heaven because of him. I've trusted him for eternal life, and I can't trust him in the face of uh, human depravity. Um, then add up. If you're trusting him for eternal problems, we can also trust him for temporal problems. In the Lord, the God of my salvation, I have put my trust. That's it, bottom line. This is a believer deciding to believe. He believed in the Messiah, now he's going to believe for eternal life. Now he's believing in the Messiah's power to help him through eternal life in the face of death and illness and terrorism and police being shot and more to come, I'm sure. Uh, So how can you say to me, now the Hebrew doesn't say this, but this is the impact of it, get out of town now. Run away from your responsibilities, get as low as possible, and uh, just hope for the best. You know, just kind of hold on to yourself and uh, watch out, punt your responsibilities. What we're seeing here is he's saying, look, active trust in his God, the God of his salvation, allowed David and will allow us to interpret reality around us through a lens of spiritual reality. We need to kind of predecide not to, to doubt, pout, and drop out the next time a big one hits, and it's coming. Everybody in this room is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, and this is the worst part, or just about to what? Go into a crisis, okay? And a lot of people want to build their spiritual battleship right in the middle of their next hurricane. That's a terrible time to start building a battleship. You, they never build battleships in the middle of hurricanes. You gotta build it before the hurricane comes or as soon as you can <laughs> during it. And so I think that's what this psalm is talking about. This, read this as if verse one is totally detached from the rest of the psalm. It's like an umbrella. The bottom line is I've taken trust in the Lord. So don't tell me to give up on God or to give up on my responsibilities and my family, my church, and my country. My job, I mean, I'm going to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord no matter what happens because he outranks ISIS, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump or Barack Obama. And the Lord trust, taking my trust, take my refuge. Don't tell me to give up. Don't tell me to punt. I'm not going to do it. I'm deciding not to doubt my doubts. I'm deciding to doubt my doubts, not to punt when things are inexplicable all around me, and they are inexplicable. I'm 63 years old. I know I look older than that. <coughs> but I checked my birth certificate last week when I was, I checked my, asked my mother, she said, yeah, she's, uh, she's 25 years older than I am, so she's what, I'm uh, 63, so she's uh 88, is that right? Yeah, I don't do math very well in front of people anymore either, but I used to, I'm losing that too. So let's go from our core conviction here, to, uh, you know, there's that chart I wanted to show you. It would have been nice if I'd done it in a timely manner. But we're talking about that the word for God here in verse 1, the Lord, all caps, means the God of our salvation, the God who enters into covenants and promises with individuals because he loves us individually. I think the most important verse in the Bible is probably John 3.16. You know, there's some hard things to understand in the Bible, but the main things are plain things, and they get repeated a lot. And you know John 3.16. God, the Father, loved the world so much that he gave his Son. The second person of the Trinity becomes the God-man Savior for us. And what does he ultimately do? Live a perfect righteous life, die to pay our sin debt on the cross, and validate all that by rising again from the dead. Nothing in current events, cancer can't do this, ISIS can't do this, the election process can't do this, we'll eradicate that. That's the gospel. That's the good news, that God loved us and Christ has done the work of redemption for us. And uh, that's where you start the Christian life. And then after that, you're supposed to live for the one who died for you. We don't live for the... Ron did a very nice job of, of emphasizing that good works that are commanded in Scripture aren't the cause, they're the effect of this relationship. They're not the root of our salvation they're the fruit of it and frankly an active trust that kind of gives god the benefit of the doubt when you really can't figure out how what's happening to you makes sense that's what faith is you saying god you know better than i do and this has happened i never thought it would happen never thought i'd be in this situation but i'm going to hold on to you i'm going to continue to trust and obey you and do it one day at a time that's all anybody can do anyway even when you think it's good that's not really that good. It's a very, very, very tenuous situation we live in under this planet, under the sun on this planet. Okay, let's go from our core conviction of believers who persevere instead of panic to the kind of cultural crisis, and I read all of those things earlier, that can tempt believers, including you, including me, to panic and punch spiritually and morally in the face of all this disaster. And again, this is an expanded kind of a translation, almost a paraphrase. But this is the way I would render it. Watch out David, and the people talking to him are his friends. They're they're trying to give him good advice. Sometimes your sometimes your friends can give you bad advice. Sometimes your spouse can give you bad advice. Sometimes the wisest thing you can say to your spouse is no dear. Okay? Garden of Eden, Eve says, "Hey, Adam, eat this." He should have said no dear. So I'm not blaming all the sins of the world on women, but uh They've got the ball. Well, actually, Adam do know exactly what he's doing, so he shouldn't have done it. Watch out. The wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon a string to shoot from ambush. In darkness is an idiom for ambush. It's like uh, raining cats and dogs is an idiom for hard rain. So some of the translators don't know that or don't want to do that, but that's what it's talking about, to shoot from ambush at those who are upright in heart. Um, you think of the police officers, peace officers in, in Baton Rouge, Dallas. That's what happened. That's a particularly horrific way uh, for people like that to have to face violence. Uh, It's too late for us to do anything significant. After all, since the spiritual foundations of our society are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Probably nothing is kind of what they're alluding to. The expected answer is nothing or at least nothing significant. In other words, their strategy for David is when the going gets tough, quit. Uh never had a baseball coach tell us that. (laughs) Our golf coach didn't really talk to us very much because he didn't play golf. It was a strange thing. The head football coach was our golf coach, and uh, all he knew about golf was he'd give us a packet, give us a sleeve of three titles, and drive us to the golf course and say, play good, and he'd sit there and listen to country music for five hours, and then we'd come in and say, did you play good? Uh, Not as good as we wanted to, coach. Okay, well, there's always a tournament next week. Don't worry about it. That was kind of the extent of that. I mean, really, it was weird. But uh, And then uh, that didn't work, so I had the head basketball coach be the golf coach. And he had us giving him golf lessons, but he had a congeni- congenital shank where you would hit off the hosel and the ball goes sideways. So that was my fault because I couldn't teach him how to make contact. But then again, then I met this girl in high school that I eventually married. Name's Debbie. And at that time, my family owned a drive- small driving range where you hit golf balls in Beaumont, Texas, and, uh, so I took my girlfriend out to the driving range, uh, cause I'm working at the driving range, that one night, and all the customers leave, so I said, hey, let's see how, let's, let me teach you how to hit, hit a golf ball. So we went up there to the old rubber tee, you know, and had this big old driving range, uh, driver thing, and, uh, got her lined up, got her square and everything, and she picked the club up and whiffed it, and picked it up and whiffed it, and literally, I, I worked with her for like 90 minutes, I could not get her to make contact. So at that point I said, I can no longer take this person seriously. But, uh, you know, she has so many other appealing qualities, I ended up marrying her. But uh, next time, I'm only going to marry somebody who can make contact with a golf ball. I'm just telling you, that's what it is. Yeah, so this is a bad crisis we're in. There are several times in David's life, he doesn't tell us exactly what portion of his life he's talking about here I personally think this is when his son, Absalom, rebelled against him and got him, kicked, kicked David out of his capital momentarily, and it looked like the bad guys were going to overthrow David, who was clearly God's anointed. Everybody has their critics, including David, including the Lord Jesus. But uh, there, his advisors are saying, just get out of Jerusalem, which he did do temporarily, but only as a tactical withdrawal with the full intention of taking his responsibility back because that was his, his uh, calling from God. So when the going gets tough, get out of town. Forget about your faith, your family, your responsibilities. Just run away and watch out for yourself while there's still time. Now, it's very important to notice the psalm doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the end of verse 3, does it? Although verses 2 and 3 are well-meaning advice from people with no faith, telling a believer just to punish faith and everything else and, and do the best you can with what you got. But here's the thing. Uh, and boy, we see this so much in our country today. Cultures and whole countries can reject and even vilify moral and spiritual reality. When the foundations are broken, uh, what can the righteous do? It becomes hard because when all the elites are convinced none of the basic things we know are truth as believers, as Christians, they're either not, not only not true, they're actually bad and repressive and uh, not inclusive enough and in all this garbage. Uh, it becomes difficult uh, for people of faith uh, to do the right thing. But here's the weird thing. This is obviously bad news, okay? But uh, as much as I love my country, and I'm very patriotic. Uh, in many significant ways, over the last 50 years, the spiritual and moral foundations of the United States of America uh have been broken. They've been denied and even now vilified by the majority of the elites on both sides of the aisle. This is not one party's problem. But you see this in the leaders in government, education, media, both news and entertainment. They have a whole different worldview. They have a whole different set of priorities. And they actually think they're doing the right thing. It's not like they're saying, hey, let's mess up the country by going this way. They actually think they're going to help the country. They think American. Power and prestige causes all the problems in the world. So for us to be powerful economically and militarily is a bad thing. Uh, So I actually think it's good for the world for us to go down the tubes. Uh, And I may be paranoid, and I probably am a little bit, but I'm not always wrong. But I think there's going to come a time fairly soon where these foundational truths of reality, of spiritual moral reality are not only going to be rejected by the elites, they're going to be essentially criminalized. It's going to happen sooner or later at the, the, the in the direction we're going. And that's a big problem. It's not just for Christians. It's a problem for the whole culture because once you deny these basic foundations, the culture becomes irrational and incredibly obscene uh, because there are no standards anymore. And I could give you just a couple examples, but I like the analogy of... Uh, Do you realize it's against federal law to destroy alligator eggs? Do you know that? It's against U.S. federal law to destroy alligator eggs. But since 1973, it's not only legal to abort human babies in the womb, it's a constitutional right. You can't, don't touch the alligator eggs. But if you want to abort a baby, that's fine, you know? Um, We live in a culture where the statement, all lives matter. We've had major people running for office who tried to say all lives matter and then they apologized for daring to be so offensive they made the statement in public that all lives matter. When you live in a culture where a statement like all lives matter is offensive, you're living in an irrational culture. How do you get there? By denying the moral and spiritual foundations. Once you deny that, just everything spins out of control. Uh, Fort Hood, the, you know, the guy is spouting out Arabic statements from the Quran as he's shooting people at Fort Hood, and that becomes described as workplace violence. That's irrational. But that's that's really the way they see it. They really see it that way because they've taken the lenses off, and you won't believe how fuzzy you are. The older I get, the worse my vision is. And I have both eyes open. I am only use this eye anyway. But now it's just, the room is almost spinning. It's gotten so bad. But with my lenses on, I'm halfway decent. But yeah, that if you wonder why smart people, people with high IQs that go to Harvard and Yale can have the positions they have, it's because they live in an irrational universe and their assumptions are completely different than ours and they're based on nothing. They're based on nothing. It's just based on Fantasyland. Alligator eggs are more important than human babies. All lives matter is offensive and racist. And a guy who's who's clearly an extremist in a particular religion, spouting uh, passages from the Quran. Uh, I like to say how many Methodist suicide bombers we had recently in the world. And I'm not even a Methodist, but there are no Methodist suicide bombers. You know what? Why? They got a different worldview. They got a Christ-centered worldview. They don't do stuff like that. Um. Here's the thing. Allow me to uh, quote two national leaders and I'm not talking about Hillary or uh, Donald Trump. Uh, some of you heard me say this on a Wednesday a while back, but early on in the primary po- uh, process, uh, somebody at Halliburton told me, not at Halliburton, at Cameron. I don't work at Halliburton anymore. Uh, <laughs> neither do any of you, but uh, that's a whole different thing. But uh, I do work part-time at Cameron. I had somebody at Cameron tell me uh, that Donald Trump was in the Bible. And I said, really? Uh, And they said, yeah. You know, it says in 1 Thessalonians, the Trump shall sound. So I'm talking about a trumpet, not a person. But let me quote a couple of American uh, leaders, and I'm not talking about Hillary or Donald. I'm talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams. And I know you know this, but Thomas Jefferson... Uh, has an amazing resume. He was our first Secretary of State, our second Vice President, and our third President. That's pretty good there. And um, let me quote him. Thomas Jefferson. All the elites tell you he was a deist. He sounds like a little bit more than a deist here. I don't think he was a born-again evangelical Christian, but he says, and this is actually chiseled into the side of the Jefferson Memorial, so it's going to be hard for them to to erase that, but it's probably going to happen, because this will be unconstitutional very soon, possibly. Jefferson said, can the liberties of a nation, and he means ours, be thought secure, the liberties, like the First Amendment, when we have removed their only firm basis, and what's the firm basis for our liberties, according to Thomas Jefferson, and he's not part of the Tea Party He's not part of the ultra-conservative conspiracy. Let me read it again. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we remove their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Uh... "...that they may not be violated, that our liberties may not be violated, but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, and that his justice cannot sleep forever." That's what Thomas Jefferson said. Uh, nobody running for president will tell you that now, but it still is true. Now let's go to John Adams, and it's interesting. If you know anything about those two guys, they didn't like each other, not even a little bit. They didn't like each other personally but they were devoted to something much bigger than themselves. They weren't going to destroy the country because they didn't like each other very much. This is John Adams. John Adams, as you know, was our second president and the father of our sixth president. Who was our sixth president? John Quincy Adams. And he says this, talking about the Constitution, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions Unbridled by morality and religion. He's saying, if the foundations are broken, morally and spiritually, this government cannot work. It will collapse because, according to John Adams, we have no, our government isn't armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled. Black Lives Matter, Ku Klux Klan kind of stuff. I, I'm, I'm not racist, okay? But some of these groups just are. Uh, if you're telling me all lives matter is a racist statement, you are a racist, okay? Sometimes you, it takes one to know one, right? We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern any other. He's saying when the nations are broken, it's all going to fall apart. And that may happen, but we can't fall apart, okay? You're going to keep loving the Lord? You're going to keep loving your family? You're going to keep trying to do the right thing? As long as there's breath in you. That's the plan. That's the plan. Uh, as Psalm 73 says, Who have I in heaven but thee? And beside thee I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh will fail, but thou, O Lord, of my portion forever. So, yeah, our society is in moral and uh, spiritual free fall. Our nation is very much in jeopardy, at least the nation we've known in its existence. But God's word speaks to us, and I'm so thankful this psalm doesn't stop with verse uh, 3 because the key to the thing hangs at the back door. Look at verses 4 through 7. Here's the content of David's trust. And this has got to be the content of Carol's trust and Mimi's trust, and uh, Tom's trust and Brad's trust in the days ahead. It should have been anyway. It should be all the time. Because you're either in, coming out of one, about to go into crisis. That's just the way life is. So this is the content of his conviction. And basically we see four things, specific things he's thinking about God. Number one, he believes and he knows that God sees things in your life and all around you from a different perspective than we do or can we cannot see all the 10 trillion pieces that God sees as he sees how that mosaic fits together. Derek can see maybe 18. I'm not as smart as Derek. I see maybe eight on a good day. And if I take my glasses off, I only see three. Okay, So you've got to work with what you got. Number one, God sees things from a different perspective. We can't, and he's okay with it. Okay, It's all going to work out in the end. Number two, God's aware of the unfair, unjust status quo we face now. He's aware of ISIS. He's aware of all the insanity that the elites uh, have in mind for us that's irrational. He knows all that. So he he understands our frustration. God will actively execute justice for his people in the future, and the God he's trusting in will ultimately and fully vindicate his people forever. It's not just now. It's forever he's factoring in. That's the way you got to look at reality when you're a believer because that's the way reality works. And, uh, if you think the nightly news is going to tell you that, forget it. Oprah's not going to tell you that. The the Bible does, okay? So let's walk through those. Here's the core, here's the content of the core conviction of believers who persevere in the face of societal breakdown. And the first thing he says is this in verse four, the Lord, again, all caps, the God of my salvation that I'm trusting in for time and eternity is in his holy temple. And that outranks everybody else on earth. And his throne is in heaven. Derek, look up uh, Psalm 103.19. Psalm 103.19. Yeah, talking about temples, uh, some of you guys remember Bill White, who was a uh, tbf for many years when I got here 28 years ago. But he and his family, one uh, uh, July, went to California for vacation. They stopped at Salt Lake City, went to the main Mormon temple, uh, there, and they do have a tour for tourists, you know, and at the end of the tour they ask you to to write down your name and your contact information so when you get back home from your vacation, they can contact you about Mormonism. So Bill White, when he got to that uh, thing he's supposed to fill out, instead of putting Bill White, Duncan, Oklahoma, he put Brad McCoy, twenty five oh nine Virginia Street, Duncan, Oklahoma. So about a week later, I got a call from a very excited Mormon missionary who wanted to tell me about the Book of Mormon. So that was that, that was and about a month later, Bill says, uh, Did you ever get a call from a Mormon mission? Did you ever recently get a call from a Mormon missionary? And I went, You were the one, right? <laughs> because when the Mormon missionary, when I signed off, he said, But yeah, you visited the temple. You signed up, you know? said, so, No, nah, that wasn't me. Uh Psalm 10319, what does it say? Yeah, he just outranks everybody. Uh you gotta read the end of the book, okay? Uh, there's an argument against the God of the Bible. It goes like this. If God were all good, he would want to defeat evil. And if God were all powerful, he could defeat evil. And look around. Evil isn't defeated. Therefore, there cannot be an all-good, all-powerful God. And that sounds like pretty tight logic, except there's a hidden premise in that deduction. Uh, there's a time limit. The way you should state that is since the God of David's faith is all loving. He wants to defeat evil. And since the God of David's faith and my faith and Derek's faith and the real God of creation and of the Lord Jesus Christ, since the real God is all powerful, he can defeat evil, but it hasn't been defeated yet, so it's got to be coming. There's no way our God's going to put up with this forever. There's a limit to his justice, and because he rules from heaven, he trumps even Donald Trump. That's a good thing to remember, okay? That's verse four. Verse five. His eyes behold his eyelids test. This is Hebrew poetry, so you have some parallelism there, but he's just saying God is aware. He's awake. He's not asleep. He's not unaware of your current crisis. He's not unaware of the fact the foundations are crumbling in the United States of America. God isn't an American. I'm a very proud American. Uh, I'm going to try to stay as nonpartisan this time as possible, but when you got a guy come up there and say, uh, you don't know who I am, probably, but let me tell you, I'm a Christian, I'm a conservative, and I'm an American in that order. That's pretty good. Okay. That's just me. But, uh, yeah, God's awake. God's aware. And sometimes, sometimes you wonder. I mean, things can happen to you like, why? How? Uh, you know, you got to doubt your doubts, but God's aware. God's awake and. He tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God's not just aware he's going to hold every individual personal, personally, responsibility, personally responsible to him, to God, not to the Supreme Court, not to Barack Obama, not to Hillary Clinton, not to Donald Trump, not to a pastor of a church, nothing like that, but to God. Uh, as I already mentioned, and Stan was happy to sh- shake his head earlier, yes, uh, the one who loves violence, his soul hates, There are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, billions of thousand million. Uh, Dr. Pat Kate, uh, who is a missionologist who served in the Arab world for 25 years, estimates about 5% uh, of those good folks are potentially violent. 5% is a small percentage, but 5% of 1.6 billion is a huge raw number. Okay, Uh, So we do have a problem in that sense but, you know, it's easy to read that here and say, yeah, you know, God hates ISIS and he hates people like you know, the folks who are killing police officers. Well, he hates that kind of violence. But, you know, he hates some of the stuff we do, too. Kind of loves us but hates our sin. Uh, there's a statement in Proverbs, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, that says, there are six things God hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes. Sometimes we Christians, sometimes we pastors, can be self-righteous, can look down our nose at other people. You go into the convenience store, the gal there, single mother in there, has a, bad choices with men and all kinds of stuff, and she's not very friendly when you buy your snow cone from her, you know. And you think, man, you know, when I was a kid, when I worked behind a counter, I had to be nice to the customer. The customer's always right. What do you expect? You know, she's not gonna play by our by our rules. You go in there with a self-righteous smirk. Uh, you may be guilty of the first thing God hates: pride, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. thats Isis again there. A heart that devises wicked plans. A lot of times some of the stuff we wish on people and think about people are not very righteous. Uh, maybe it's just me. <laughs> Feet that make haste just can't wait to run out and do, do evil. As, soon as mommy leaves, you stop, start talking different. You start texting different. As, soon as mommy comes back, you're boom, real sweet again. That happens with teenagers. Even Christian teenagers. A false witness who brings out lies. And the last one is, and a lot of times in Hebrew lists, the last one's the most important, one who sows discord among brothers. Now watch this. All of the other world religions have had major in-house squabbles and nasty splits and stuff that lead to hatred, slander, vitriol, that can split houses of worship and whole families. But in the 2,000 year history of the Christian church, there's never been a single church split there's never been an instant where a Christian has sinfully slandered another Christian. It's ne- it never happens. Happens all the time. And that's one of the things God hates. So, although I, I know it's become kind of a different level. Go back to Psalm 11. All I can see when I read verse 5, the one who loves violence, his soul hates, is people like Osama bin Laden and those types. And I think that clearly is talking about that kind of person. But let's not get too self-righteous. Because God tells us other stuff he hates that sometimes we as Christians, we're not just capable of, but we actually do it. And I've certainly done some of that. And still sometimes are tempted to and probably follow through with it. So that's not good. Number three, God sees things from a different point of view than us. He's aware of our unfair, unrighteous status. Thirdly, uh, he is going to execute justice for his people in the future. Upon the righteous, he'll rain snares. Not every unrighteous person has horrible things happen to them, but the way of the transgressor is always hard. And ultimately, brimstone and uh, brimstone and burning wind is the destiny of those who have, have not received Christ. Uh, psalm 73 emphasizes that, that when the psalmist, early in the psalm, is saying, God, you've blown it. You know, all these people who are unrighteous are doing great. They're all financially successful, and I'm a good guy. I go to synagogue every week, and I'm, I'm poor and don't have anything. And he says, "When I was working about that. I really thought God had made a mistake until I remembered their end, and I re- realized the unbeliever is one step away from a Christless eternity, and I've got all this grace that God's given me as a believer and eternity to look forward to, right? Uh, so that's a big, anybody who tries to take that away from you has just gutted the heart of Christian living. Uh, don't let anybody take the grace out of salvation for you because then you're just kind of uh, walking a tightrope based on your performance and that's not going to get you very far. The fourth and final thing that is specifically mentioned is the content of his core conviction here is that God will ultimately and fully in the end time vindicate his people forever uh, for F-O-R there, the Hebrew connective key is, means because, all this is true because the Lord is righteous he loves righteousness now, real quick, if you got your, we're almost done. Look at Philippians 3. If you got a Bible, turn to Philippians 3. If not, I'll just read it to you. But remember, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 New Testament books, had been a Pharisee in the Jewish religion and was trying to crank out enough religious righteousness that he could earn his way into heaven. Now, the problem with that is you can't, God doesn't grade on a curve. The problem is you can't be good enough to earn your salvation, which is why Jesus sent a God sent a Savior, Jesus, to pay the sin debt in our place, do the work of salvation for us, so we could trust him for it and receive it as a gift. But Paul talks about that in Philippians 3, and he says in verse 9, after talking about all the things he tried to do to be righteous enough, to be good enough, to be saved by his own good works, until he realized he couldn't be good enough He was a sinner. He needed a Savior. He trusted Christ as Savior. He said, as a believer now, I'm found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own based on my performance, my obedience to the Old Testament law, but that, the kind of righteousness which is a gift given through faith in Christ. When we believe in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us, put on our account. We're seen as just as righteous as he is. That is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so ultimately, don't plug, go back to Psalm 11, don't plug in performance or behavior modification here, Steve. This isn't talking about that. The righteousness he loves is this gift of perfect righteousness we receive through Christ. He sees us in Christ. Uh, if I had a, I don't have a quarter, which tells you I've been out of town. But anyway, if I had a quarter here and it was all dirty, but I wash my hand and put it in my hand you wouldn't be able to see the quarter anymore. What would you see? My clean hand. When we're, in, when the Bible says we're in Christ, Aubrey, you're in His hand. That's the way God sees you, as far as your standing is concerned. This is an incredible thing. We ought to be happy about it, even in perilous times. Okay, let's end this way. In perilous times, like these, Christians should punt panic, even though it's awful tempting to totally panic, and positively persevere. Even when the spiritual and moral foundations of a society are destroyed, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can and should continue to build our lives, our families, and our churches on those truths, those fundamental truths, even though they're vilified and denied and maybe even criminalized at some point, as we trust and obey the Lord, walking with him one day at a time. You just give him everything you got even if it's just a little bit If you can't do it one day at a time do it one second at a time that's what you do and he'll give you the power to do that even when our society's in the midst of the inherent degradation caused by spiritual and moral freefall all the social problems that come out of this stuff uh, we can be encouraged by actively embracing a divine viewpoint perspective on reality and I you know this this statement is, is really helpful I think you know life now is real. And it's important. Okay, don't let any preacher tell you now it's not important. One thing that counts is heaven. Life now is real, and it's really important, but it's not ultimate, and it's only temporary. Right? Uh, by sandwiching the trauma we're facing, as a nation, maybe you've had trauma. We have people in this room who've had great trauma inflicted on them because of circumstances that have happened to them. Uh, when you're living in traumatized times, I think this psalm is saying, sandwich the trauma between trust and truth. And we can be stable, even though we're going to be sobered by some of the things the world will throw at us. And we can continue to love the Lord and others and believe and behave consistent with that faith. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do live in perilous times. We don't want to paint a blacker picture than exists, but we don't want to deny the status quo either. But we know your light shines brightest against a dark background. And so I pray that, uh, regardless of how our beloved America continues to spin, what direction that, uh, it goes into, short of a, a profound national revival, it may be too late to get what we had. But regardless of that, uh, each one of us can resolve today to put our trust in the Lord, the Lord of our salvation and to rest in you. I pray for anyone this morning who's in this building and they've not very specifically and intentionally put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Lord Jesus, uh, I'm a sinner. I've broken your rules. i break my own rules at my worst. Uh, I've, I've done that. It's my fault. And I can't fix it by trying to go to church more or trying to do good works or trying to do certain rituals or being baptized or circumcised or uh, uh, catechized or whatever it might be. I can't save myself, but I believe Jesus came to save me. He paid for my sins. He's my Savior. He did the work necessary to get me to heaven by dying for my sins and rising again from the dead, and I put my faith and trust. I accept him, and him alone is my Savior. If that's your prayer today, welcome to the family, for the rest of us who have trusted Christ in that way. Uh, Father, help us to kind of renew our vow to rest in you even as we try to shine our light. This is brightly and Christ-likely, Christ-likely, uh, likenessly, I guess that's a word, as we can. Uh, I thank you, Father, for each one who's here this day. I know that a lot of people are traveling this weekend. We do pray for safety as they travel to and from and we also pray for our children who are about to share some of the things they've learned uh, this summer and we thank you for uh, them and their families and the people that have worked so uh, uh, consistently and well to teach them during this super summer this uh, this summer we thank that thank you for that and ask that you'd uh, give us your power to believe and apply the truth we've seen this morning in Jesus name we pray amen